welcome to Games in Schools and Libraries. I'm Donald Dennis. You can find me wandering all over the wilds of the internet as Walsfio. As always, the Games in Schools and Libraries podcast is produced by Inverse Genius in association with the Georgetown County Library System. Today, I am excited, excited, excited. I'm having on an old friend. Well, you know, old in the way of the internet, I guess. Uh, Daniel Peterson, who works for Mayday Games. Hey, Daniel. Hey, how are you doing today, Donald? I'm doing great. It's a, It feels like, because we've had you on, you know, some of our other shows and stuff, that, that I know you ever so well through the, you know, the modern wonders of Facebook and stuff. But, uh, you know, we, we've really only known each other for about two years. Yeah, it's it's. I'm thinking about that time frame, and I'm like, yeah, it has been about two years. A year, year and a half, actually. I guess uh, uh, Board Game Geek Con 2016. So hooray! Now I feel uh, like I know you better just because I've heard your podcast, and you haven't heard anything I've said until we've met. Ah, uh, yes. Well, and that's true. And then, then of course, following you on on Facebook. So I don't know true. if that part will stay in, but it's just it was a weird revelation that I had. Anyway, so Daniel, would you please let our listeners know? a little bit about the company for which you work and you, where you can be found on the social internet. Yeah, I work for Mayday Games. We specialize in family games, which are, we define family game games as games that are engaging enough for adults, but simple enough for children. And uh, I'm the lead game developer and the account manager. The account manager is the boring part of the job, so we'll focus on the developing and the fun side today. <laughs> Okay. That's the part of the job that pays the bills. The rest is, is the more interesting stuff. Oh, it's an extra hat you picked up when no one was looking. <laughs> yeah, I've had a lot of hats and still have a lot of hats with that company. Mm. All right. And so uh, where where are you on the internet? Where can people find you on Twitter uh, you or find, find Mayday Facebook. Games? Uh, you can find Mayday Games at Twitter. You can find me on Twitter at DancingDanSLC. Uh, we're also on Facebook, website, MaydayGames.com. Nice. Well, uh so, have you played anything exciting lately that you'd like to share with our teachers and librarians who might be listening, or shall, shall we jump right into the topic? Man, yes, things that are exciting. Uh, really neat game I've stumbled across is Numbers. Have you played that? Or like NMBR9, number nine? Is that the one that has like, it looks like a giant bingo board? No, it's it's pieces, it's, it's numbers made out of chunky like square eight bit graphics in a sense. And huh. you draw one and then the whole group takes that number and places it into their, their their area and you're building a puzzle. So the rules are is that if it's sitting on the table, you don't get any points. If it's one level above, you're going to get one times that number as a scoring. If it's two levels above, it's two times that number in scoring. But the hook is that it can't have, it has to have complete tiles underneath it. So therefore you can't put it on a tile that's going to overhang or the exact same number, which is the same shape. So it's kind of a fun little puzzly little bit of a math game. I, I'm a puzzle guy. I really enjoyed it. Really light plays in about 15 20 minutes Ooh, that sounds ideal for several of our several of our listeners because teachers need some faster playing games and librarians like stuff that you can just take off the shelf and, and get into play yeah this would be great it's very accessible and it's very fair because everybody places the same number at the same time and i think the msrp on that is maybe 2025 it's not my company so i don't know for sure but a mm. uh, really neat game now, is this one where you're all playing on the center board or you're playing on your own boards like um, Karuba? Playing on your own board like Karuba. Karuba is a great example or to tie this into since it's the tile drawing everybody plays at the same time. <clears throat> okay. Well, neat, 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 neat. Um, I guess well, let's let's go ahead and dive into topics. Uh, 
topic of the day because I think that I have been seeing the wonderful trend of a lot of librarians going, hey, I want to bring in library games into my library and I want us to, you know, I'm going to buy all of these games, which of course has to sound great to, you know, to any librarians who like games and to publishers and all that. But, but I think that there is a huge trap that I think most people, when they start their game collections at their library and maybe even teachers at school, that they sort of stumble into that, that, that might cause them problems at the beginning. And the deal is, is like, Hey, my favorite game in the world is we'll just say diplomacy because it is frequently my favorite game in the world. And it is uniquely inappropriate. <laughs> uh, <laughs> For a casual play library setting. And it is also not necessarily appropriate for schools unless you are doing a particular kind of activity built around it, since it normally takes seven or more hours to play. And it's very backstabby and it requires, let's see, a lot of emotional you know, intelligence um, and development to, to sort of survive it unscathed, right? I agree. Very much. So it, the short version of that is, is just because you like a game doesn't necessarily mean it's appropriate for your setting. And and I know Mayday creates a lot of games that have been wildly successful at our library. We've reviewed Coconuts and Coconuts Duo as being great. Um, and then there's this one that's in the trash can. Garbage um, Day. Garbage. I want to keep wanting to call it Trash Day. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, Garbage Day. And it has I don't care little- what you call it. You're, at least you're talking about my game. Right, right. And it's, and it is a lot of fun. Um, and then click clack lumberjack. And so all of these games have, uh, just sort of met with just people being excited and thrilled to play them in our environment. And I n- would not necessarily add click clack lumberjack to my personal collection. Um, but it is one that we had it out for a couple of weeks. So when we get in a game, I think that's really appropriate. We set it out and we make sure that the kids get used to seeing it. So they think about it. Right. And right. then, they go back and they get it off the shelves again. If we just play it once or twice and we put it on the shelves, they're never going to ask for it again. Mm. Right. But this one, you know, they have and they see and they go, okay, they do it. So how should a librarian start their collection in such a way as to, uh, to get this sort of instant uptake? Well, it's very important to get the right game for the right situation and the right people. Um, I'm not a librarian, but you know, I think the biggest thing that you want to build in a library is a sense of community. And so how do you make it so that you can welcome more people into the community, get them safe, comfortable, and playing the game? And from a publisher standpoint, I want to be able to empower people to teach my games. So imagine a community in your library where you have a person that knows the game, plays the game, and then teaches the game to other people and brings more people into the community. And so you want light games. You want accessible games. With Mayday Games, we have coconuts, which you can learn in two minutes. It's uh, you you catapult coconuts with monkeys into cups, and then with the cups, you take them into your area, and you want to build a pyramid, three on the bottom, two, and one. Now, what makes the game fun is that you can get coconuts into someone else's cup, and you can pull it from their area into your area. Uh, kind of that take back, that... Uh, Go, going back and forth in stilling cups is where the magic is in coconuts. And another thing about coconuts is those monkeys get attention. Mm. People are going to walk into the room. They're going to see the monkeys. They're going to see the people engaged around it. And that's a great way to suck people into your community. Great way to suck people into your games. It really is. And it's another one that, that people get out, but they can't ever figure out how to put away correctly. <laughs> <laughs> I always put my own coconuts away. I've never seen that. 
I think that's a tip for life right there is put your own coconuts away. Um, <laughs> but that's another podcast. All right. Uh, and I have to admit, though, that we are doing a live scale coconuts at uh, at Shushcon. Oh, no way. What are you using for your components? So we've got ball pit balls. Nice. And and we're either going to use laundry baskets or contractor barrels. We haven't decided. Huh. So you I, know those great I the, see pictures. Those great big giant pickle buckets or or contractor barrels that you'll get like at Lowe's. Um, yeah. And uh, so basically, we're going to have them stand with their back to it and lob the balls over their head. Uh, <laughs> nice. And uh, and that's that's going to be how that runs because we've got this you know the base game and we're going to have that set up at least part of the con in the teen room, because we have a really cool shaped table that works very well for the, for this game in particular. Um, I guess a circular table would probably work better, but uh, we thought we do a large game every year. So we had a giant Catan and a giant King of Tokyo last year where the dice were about eight inches by eight inches. Uh, that, that sounds great. Oh, my cat is throwing my phone on the floor. All right, get out of here, Claire. Um, and so we thought, well, what can we do? And we're like, well, we've had probably the most fun with coconuts as far as just generating hilarity around the table that, uh, that we, we wanted to sort of honor it with, uh, with making a copy of it that nobody can ever sell. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess I should have asked you all before I did this. Um, but so do I have your blessing to do giant life scale coconuts? Uh, please, and we would love to see some pictures and things like that. That would be great. All right. We will we'll endeavor to make that happen. Um, Let's just assume that you know me so well that, of course, I'd say yes, and I'd be excited about it. Well, yeah, but we probably should not just bring this on a publisher no, you know, live on air. Um, <laughs> but but so that's the but that's the kind of excitement that you say you do family games, but some family games are really only half a step away from party games. I agree. It's kind of that sweet spot uh, to, to, to get it right. It's like Loop and Louie is a children's game, but it has become a party game. Um, and I think Coconuts is certainly right in there. And any dexterity games uh, that also fall sort of in that in that area as well. Um, well, interestingly enough, I've had several people come up to me and tell me how our family-friendly f- games, our kid games, make great drinking games, which is a party. So... Yeah, uh, I'd say they're party games. Well, and that, that's very true. Is that that many games, um, as you bring your IQ or your yes, as your emotional intelligence <laughs> and uh, physical dexterity plummet, uh, become more and more interesting. So yeah, I, I may have said that because it, it sort of reminds me of uh, uh, coconuts. I may have mentioned this before in a previous episode. It, it reminds me of uh, children's first beer pong, which I'm sure is not how you want to brand it. Uh, no, that's not how we choose to brand it as a family game. But you know, I've heard Ryan Brenz in his pitch about coconuts. Say it's uh, it's like beer pong for children. So yes, yes. Uh, we won't brand it, but we can kind of tailor the pitch for the audience and throw that in there if appropriate. But if you're trying to get an idea of what it's like, you are trying to get an object into something else, and then you claim it. So that's all good. Hooray! Um, you know, at co- conventions, I've got the monkeys out on the table. I put coconuts inside the monkeys, and people walk up and they know how to play. And at a convention, you're so busy that if they can teach other people how to play the game for you, um, even better. And, you know, in the library, I imagine that there's times where you have to walk away. So if you can get them to teach the game to others, you've got a good hit on your hands. I do want to clarify, he's not jamming coconuts up inside a monkey. He's putting it in their hands. So it looks like they are holding... <laughs> 
the coconut and are, are kind of like they're praying it. They're holding it up like an idol in front of them. And then you pull down the arms and you let go and it catapults it back over their head into these cups. Good clarification. I could see where I'd be confused. But uh, yeah. So, and in fact, that's the, the second time I ever saw the game, somebody walked up to the table and go, what is this? And I said, this is, <laughs> this is fun. And uh, I was at, as at BGG con actually. And I was like, look at this. And they're like, oh my gosh, they're flinging poo. I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> it's coconuts. <laughs> you Go say, ahead. I tell people, when they make the poo comment, I say, well, you can choose to play that game if you'd like. <laughs> you can mm. choose that experience if you choose. I'll stick with the coconuts. Well, and I do have a, a, a game called Poo in the library about monkeys flinging poo. Um, so I point them at that one. I say, no, no, this one's poo. The coconuts is, well, coconuts. So, <laughs> um, so. When you're talking family games, and we have occasionally we try and do family game night activities and stuff like that, what is it that you are focusing on as a company to sort of make a game, a family game, a successful family game? It's got to be engaging for the adults and the children. We see a lot of games where it captures the children, but it kind of leaves the adults out. Mm -hmm. And we're willing, as a publisher, we're willing to do a game that leaves the children out, but it, for us, it really needs to be special, clean, and streamlined. So the family focus really is the family friendly focus is really where we're at. And uh, yeah, it, it's it's got to be engaging enough that the adults are playing it. Uh, good example is Dead Man's Draw. It's a press your luck game where you know even if you're the younger member in the family, you can still compete in the game and you still have a chance of beating the adult. And, and right. that, that's the experience that we want. And, um, you know, for us, it's the experience of being with family is where the magic is. And that's something that we really focus on with our games. And I would say one of the things that I found is that your games, whether you built them this way intentionally or not, are are incredibly scalable as far as what level the game is going to be taught or, or played at. Because in Coconuts, you have the different color bins and you have these cards. We almost never play with the cards at the library until somebody goes, hey, what are these cards? And then we know that they're looking, that, that their eyes were were roaming around the table and they weren't fully engaged in the game anymore. It's so like, oh, well, here's what the cards do. And then it starts another level of excitement. And with Click Clack Lumberjack, you have the bugs on the inside of the log. Well, the younger kids who play, they don't care about the bugs. They don't know any of that stuff. And then after a while you go, oh, and you see these things? And then all of a sudden it sort of ups the game. Agree. Um, it's, you know, when you're pitching these at conventions, you strip the game down to the bare minimum. And once they're excited about the game, they love the game. It's it's almost the, but wait, there's more. <laughs> there is cards. There's another dimension in there that they can explore the game on themselves. There's been times where I've played Dead Man's Draw with younger members in my family, and I kind of threw out the suitabilities just until they got the idea of the bust, the push your luck aspect. And once they have that, then I'll introduce suit abilities that I think are more fun for them until they learn how to play the game. Yep. Is there anything else you're looking for in a family game that might translate to a school or library environment? Yeah, I think that player count is a good thing to look at. Uh, you know, if you have games that you could have four or five, maybe even six people involved in, I think that's a good way to add people into your group, get people to say, hey, come join us, come play a game. Uh, I, quite a bit, I go play at my local game store, and I always pack games that are going to accommodate five, ten, many people. Because at some point, not all the time, many people will come into the room and I want to involve them in a game. So if I can get them to play the Resistance or, or uh, some of the party games, that's a great way to involve more people. Hmm, Yeah. 
Uh, I think that sort of distilling things down, it's like this is this mechanism that we're working over is is also pretty useful instead of, you know, because a lot of the more gamerly games have, you know, layered mechanisms. Like it's deck building and it's worker placement and it's area control and it's, you know, this, that, and the other thing that especially when you are building a collection at the beginning that you want, you by and large, you want games that here's what you're doing. Like um, I'll pick a game that isn't yours, uh, Splendor, which I don't really like that much, right? Splendor is a game where you go, you know, if I never play Splendor again, I could die happy. But uh, because it is teaching one thing and it plays quickly, it works. Um, and you sort of do the same thing. Like when you get to Assassin Con, oh, you're basically trying to not be alone with your target or or with the person whom you are the target of. That's the whole part of the game. And then you are just picking your action and then resolving the action. And then it goes on. And I think that that is the kind of thing that helps build at least the start of a collection, right? I agree. Uh, t- you know, you bring up an interesting point, and it's something that I have thought quite a bit on. I'm a new grandparent now of maybe 14 months, and of course, I'm just so excited to wait for him to grow up a little bit more and start playing games. And so I started looking at hobby games and some of the other games for toddlers out there. And the interesting thing that I'm seeing is what you're talking about right here, where you're going to learn one concept in a game, and then it builds on top of that concept. And mm-hmm. so... Um, in board gaming, the evolution of board gaming and and mechanics, it's the same idea where you have the first uh, set collection game that we might have played, which was Go Fish, and then later we're going to set collect in Monopoly. But the whole industry literally is based off of what experience can you learn, what concept can you learn, and what is the next concept for you. Um, in my neighborhood, I often play with... Uh, play games in the neighborhood, and they just don't quite understand what I do or what I'm involved in. They just want to get together and play games, uh, kind of a group of empty nesters. And I do not take my favorite game to that group. (laughs) (laughs) There's quite a few games that are just not for that group. I tend to to stick on the games that they're going to grab, they're going to pick up easy, that they have a social time with. So I'm bringing quicks to the group, I'm bringing telestrations to the group, I'm bringing code names to the group, I'm bringing America to the group. Uh, I brought Colt Express, it was definitely pushing my bounds. Some people liked it, some people didn't. And that's the biggest question to ask is... uh, you know, what games will be most accessible for the people in my library? And the next question, you know, because I want to share my favorite game as much as anybody, would be what game is next for them? After they understand this concept, what's next? And if you can get people to, again, teach the games for you, you can splinter off into groups. You can build a community where you have maybe four or five games going at a time. And if you have someone that's teaching coconuts, well, you can start teaching somebody Century Spice Road or something with a little bit more meat in it. Yeah, yeah. And and in fact, that's as much as I think that the core of your collection should all be easy to access games, you know, something along the lines of like Macroscope is pretty easy to get your head around once you played it. Definitely. Which that was... That was a delightful game. When when I was like, first of all, the setup is amazing, right? You've got this weird looking contraption that you've built out of car- cardboard, and then you're revealing h- holes in the in this top plate to see the image underneath and try and guess what it is. Um, you know, it's a guessing game. That's really all it is 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 a guessing game. And but there are so many pictures 
there is, you know, such a variety of the way that, that, you know, the images can be revealed that the mechanisms are so simple that it works. It just kind of works. And so I think that that would be great for a variety of classes um, as well as in the library, because we've still got a copy here. Definitely. Uh, Macroscope is a neat game that we've published and plays up to six players. And I've even played teams to mm. extend it past six players. And uh, you nailed it. It's it's one of those games that people get lost in the game instead of winning the game because they're having such a fun time of exploring the pictures, trying to guess what it is. That, that they does often not match track my of grabbing things. Really? You've had people that are just so focused on winning and, yes. and they, the, the images are different. Huh? That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, no, the, well, the, the, our group tends to be competitive. So, <laughs> Did you create that or did someone else um, bring it into the group? <laughs> I, 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 no, I mean, I mean, at work, it, it work. I'm sure that, uh, uh, and, and actually it, it's one of the games that I don't think would be, actually, I know it isn't. It's not necessarily a huge hit with our play group, um, but it is the kind of game that you can bring out at a party and then yes. they'll go, oh, that's fun, right? But it's Definitely. not one not one that our diehard gamers are going to get into. But there's enough to it because you're thinking, you're evaluating, you're utilizing these skills like, oh, maybe it could be a this or a that. That all of a sudden there is interest that's generated because you are trying to make uh, what pretends to be an informed decision. Um, True. But so you brought up a good point, which is what's the next game and what's the next game in the collection. And so I think that even though I have said you want to start your collection with the most accessible stuff, right? Yes. And there's a lot of caveats on that. But I think it's a great idea to have two, you know, to have some of the next step games. It's like you pick a percentage and go like for every 20 games that we get for our collection, I'm going to get one that is um, a step or two higher, right? So right. maybe Concordia is never going to be checked out of the library, right? But having it there sort of you're signaling to people who say, oh, you have games in the library. Like, not only do we have games, we have your games, you know. And so if you're trying to generate a program or create a program that sort of caters either to all ages or that does eventually attract, um, you know, dyed in the wool, diehard, excited ball gamers, then you need to have some of those just as sort of advertising your intent. Or, yeah, definitely. It's... I'm kind of a minimalist, so for me, the importance of my game collection is that it's played and used and not just a collection. And I think that that would apply in the library setting, that you want to get games that are going to be played, that they're going to be used. Right, right, right. Oh, I mean, yes, you don't want to, you don't want to get games that will never be played, um, but there are some games that you put in there that are we want to either design our, our collection to go in that direction, or we want to attract a certain kind of interest from our patrons, um, and so there are a bunch of games that I have that I wouldn't necessarily have purchased except for, oh, we are doing a grant. So we did an ecology grant. And so we have CO2 from Stronghold Games. Not, like that one. not a good library game, really. No. Um, but on the other hand, if a real, if a real gamer, and by real gamer, I mean someone who, who thinks they know about games, you know, whether or not they, they know a lot about games or whatever, it doesn't matter. But if they walk in and they know that game, a real Stronghold fan will say that instead then all of a sudden they take our collection a little more seriously, even though they see we have six copies of Flux, all right? Which Flux is very popular with people who are getting into games. I mean, it's at that point in your life, it's like you started playing games. Flux is amazing, right? I agree. Um, but if you are 20 years, 30 years into your gaming experience, 
then maybe you're a little past Flux. It's interesting you bring this up because I first played Flux about 20 years ago. And uh, yeah, I'm a little bit past it. I still appreciate it, know the value of it, and I'll play it with people because it is, it's kind of like a stepping stone. It's a landmark game in anybody's collection and experience. All right. I will. Uh, we drag it out every time we do a board game design class, right? Or a game design class. Oh, because, yeah. There's such good stuff in there. Um, and a, a, another game that uh, we're going to start bringing out every time we do that is Blank, the new one from We Are Hub Games or from Hub Games, um, where you sort of create the game as you're playing it. Um, wow. I haven't know, heard of that. I need to check it out. It is the worst named game ever. Okay. And it is just Blank, the card game. And the best way is to go to We Are Hub Games and see it. And basically, a bunch of the cards only have shapes and numbers on them, but space for you to write stuff on. And mm-hmm. over half the rule cards in the game are blank. So you, quite literally, if you win the game, you get to add a rule or you get to, to modify one of the cards. Interesting. And it, it's brilliant for a game design thing. It's not a game that I'm going to want to play necessarily because I just want to play games. But if you're looking to do game design activities in your library, it's now sort of hit that top 10 game lists for me. That, you know, 504, which is way too complex, but true, et cetera, et cetera. So it is a game designer's lab. It really is. It really is. Uh, and so I think I've covered that enough, but um, definitely. So how can people use uh, Mayday Games in particular to get folks into the library? Do you all support any kind of activities? Uh, do you have game nights? What do you recommend? For, uh, for, for schools or libraries, how to use your, your games? You know, it's a great question, and, and I'm glad that I actually thought about this in advance. Uh, I'll kind of go to, over a rundown of some of our more popular games and what to expect out of that experience and how it would work in the environment. Uh, we'll start with GitBit. Uh, GitBit's a fun game where the idea is that you're in the water, there's a shark coming after you, and you don't want to get eaten by the shark. Well, you don't have to outrun, the, outswim the shark. You just have to outswim your friends so that they get bit instead. And uh, the pieces are—they kind of look like oversized Lego pieces. And when you get bit, you literally rip the arms and the legs right off the figures. And it's—it's it's the first person to that, or the last person standing is—is is how the game is won. So it, it may game, have been—it may have been the first Mayday game I ever played. Was get bit? It, I think it was one of our earliest titles, and. You know, it's interesting that I've been with the company for four years and I've never taken GitBit and demoed it at a convention because it's been out so long and the conventions we go to, people know the game. But we started to go to the PAX conventions and I took PAX, I took it to PAX or PAX South in San Antonio and it's the first time I've demoed it throughout the convention and I sold out on the second day. So mm. it's, it's a great game and it's, it's very accessible for people that are new in games and it never fails. It's, you know, it's kind of interesting that you start getting the same reaction after a while out of people. And when I'm explaining the game and I literally rip the arm off of their the, the figures, their face always lights up like, oh my gosh, that is so cool. And it, it's just neat to see the excitement and enthusiasm for the game even after all this time. I have, uh, yeah, I, I've done that without telling them that how how it happens. Like you don't tell them, oh, I'm taking a piece off your miniature if you, you do this during the game. Off. You just say, all right, everybody, you're going to play a card. And you're going to kind of not want to be at the last of the pack or whatever it is. But here are the rules. And then we do a round. And inevitably, I end up at the at the back of the pack, right? <laughs> That's um, where I'm at. And so I pick up my figure. I said, oh, shark got me. Yank off a leg. And just their eyes go, whoo. 
Oh yeah, it, it's an instantly instant hook. It, it's so interesting to see that. It's you know I'm not putting my own game down, but it's a gimmick and it's a gimmick that works well and continues to work. I tell you what, um, Scott Nicholson has sort of put forth the theory of bait games. I don't know if we've done an episode of that on the show. If we have, it's been a long, long time. But it, Get Bit is sort of the essential ga- bait game, which is something's happening. The people are excited. There are cool bits on the table. It happens quickly. People playing it can get right back into it and play it again quickly, or other people can jump in fast. Uh, we have it at, uh, strangely, at all three branches except for the one that I work at uh, because this is you know a new library building. And so it's not one that I thought of adding to our collection. I'll have to check that out, though. Because Yeah, I recommend you adding Gitbit to your library collection. <laughs> I, I'm sure we will. I'm sure we will. Uh, another good game, it's uh, called Walk the Plank. It's a pre-programming game where, as pirates, you're jockeying for position to stay on the boat and push the other pirates off the plank into Jamie, Davy Jones' locker. It's a pre-programming game, so Colt Express, Robo Rally... Uh, River Dragons, there's several games out there like it. Now, I'm going to step out of the company's shoes and talk and be a consumer. Mm. I love Walk the Plank as a gamer, as a consumer, because you get that pre-programming experience in about 20, 25 minutes. It's just streamlined straight to the point. You have a great experience and you're done really quick. And there's so many of those moments where it's like, oh, man, I can't believe you pushed me out. Or, oh, I thought you were going to do this. And that's the magic of, of Walk the Plank. It just gets right in, learns logic, it learn it, excuse me, learns, it teaches logic, teaches a way for people to uh, pre-program and plan for the future and have a great experience doing it. And these games I'm talking about, they're affordable. Our, our average MSRP is $20. You can definitely find this stuff for a great price so it'll fit your budgets. Nice. Nice. Now, do you have problems at, at events? And maybe not because you don't usually get just kids showing up randomly but where parents will shove the kids at you and say, teach them my game. And then the parents disappear or, or does it tend to be more family sitting down or just adults? It tends to be more family sitting down. It, it's interesting you bring that up because at my local game store, I'll go down there on Saturdays if, if I'm not busy, which means if my wife hasn't told me what I'm doing that day. <laughs> and I have seen parents just kind of come in and drop their kids off. And so uh, luckily I, I, do bring a variety of games when I go. And my game store has a nice library also that I can sit down with that kid if the opportunity presents where we have a group that we can get them in and teach them a fun game and engage them while their parents are doing whatever they're doing. Yeah. So, yeah, it happens. That's Uh, what we're trying to to combat at our branch is a lot of drop-offs and not a lot of parents coming in to play with them. And we want to do the intergenerational stuff. So I was was hoping to steal an idea from... A veteran in the industry. You know, um, is is there a, like a strong, is there a kid with a strong personality that the others are looking to for leadership or? Yeah, yeah there always that? is. So what about talking to that kid and make him maybe like your games master or your games person and teach him games and get him to engage other people and, and entertain them and teach them the games and keep the game moving. Oh that yeah. That, well, that, that, that we certainly do, but I'm just trying to wait to get the parents to come in and play with the kids. Ay, yeah, yeah. That's a tough one because there's some parents that just don't care. And they're looking at you as free babysitting. Mm, yeah. Of course you can always make the invitation that, uh, this plays great with, you know, 
with families that your your parents would like this too. Hmm. Yeah, maybe that's yeah. the We'll see what happens. All right. Uh, so what else you got? What other games do you recommend that uh we have Dead Man's Draw. Uh, Dead Man's Draw is a press your luck game where you have 10 suits in a deck and you reveal cards, and either you collect your points or you press your luck and keep drawing another card. If the same suit comes up that you already have, you're going to bust. So after that first card, you have 1 in 10 chances, 2 in 10. I think you get the idea. The magic of Dead Man's Draw is that each suit has a combination, and as you string the combinations together to to help you or hurt your your other players, that's where the magic is. Plays in about 20, 30 minutes. It's very, very accessible. Just just a fun game that it's it's our best selling game and yeah, I've played it over three hundred times and I can still play it. So that says something about the game. Nice. Um <laughs> Cool. Definitely. Uh, we also have Click Clack Lumberjack. It was kind of neat. Oh, yeah. It was one of the featured events at PAX South this year. So my decision was to put it right at the corner of the booth. And you can see it from <laughs> two aisles and having this stack of trees. How would you describe that, uh, Don? Uh, the, the, uh, the, the physical uh, setup component? Slippery. I would describe the physical <laughs> setup as slippery. Um, so it's neat because you you construct this tree. And, and so you've got the core going up the center and then little plastic uh, bark that you, uh, you sort of laminate the tree with without, it's not sticky. You just sort of hanging it gently on there. And then if you knock one of the discs, cause you have this cool little ax and you give it a smack and by give it a smack, I mean the gentlest of taps uh, yeah. and pieces of bark that fall off are good points and pieces of the center circle of the wood are not. And so I generally end up with more wood than actual bark. I'm with you. I usually get negative points in the game, but um, it's very eye-catching. You've just got this pillar of tree with bark. People just give it two taps on it. Um, I'd like to do a giant version of that. That would be neat. It's one that's about four feet tall. That would be amazing. That would be amazing. And it's the game works with gravity. As soon as it taps out enough, it's just going to drop out. The bark's going to drop out on it. How would you even do a four-foot version of it? That would be so interesting. I'll, I'll talk to Seth. I'll let him think about it. Or he'll that quickly be, dismiss it and say, can't be done. That would be dangerous. <laughs> dangerous. <laughs> yeah, what would you use as an axe, right? That would be yeah. that'd be uncomfortable. Uh, but mm. really eye-catching game. It was... It's it's a way to suck people in. If you can get the looky-loos walking by and, oh, what's that? Uh, our, a lot of our games have that factor in it. With the plastic toys of Get Bit, the coconuts, the monkeys, the uh, the tree in Click Clack Lumberjack. And a game you mentioned, the Trash Can ga- Game, Garbage Day. Garbage Day, yep. yep. Uh, you've got a plastic garbage can. The idea is that you're avoiding responsibility. We've, we've all done this. If you put one more piece of trash on the garbage, you don't have to take it out. So uh, the game, you have cards that you place on the garbage, and to successfully put it on the garbage can means you don't knock other cards off, and there's two holes drilled in the cards, and you must be able to see through both holes when you place the garbage on the on the trash, on the garbage can. But there's a hook, too, that when it starts getting full, maybe you can hide the garbage in your room, and after the garbage goes out, you can kind of clean up your room a little bit. So if at the end of your turn you have size a sum of size 10 of garbage cards in your room, 10 or higher, you must clean your room by putting one out. But there's more. You also have tricky cards where you can take... Uh, Make mischief cards are what they're called, where you can take a garbage from your room and I can put it into Don's room, or I could force Don to clean his room now. Uh, lots of fun little choices, lots of get, of choices to stack the game and just have a great experience with it. It's it's 
You know, the most interesting thing about that and other stacking games is that tense moment where you know it's about to fall and it starts getting a crowd around people when it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and they know it's going to fall. It seems like that's the most exciting part of a dexterity stacking game is that that anticipation of falling. Yeah, especially when it doesn't. When you're like, I, I've got you, sucker, it's going to fall, and it does not. Yeah, I've, I've had several people on the fence where I think I've got them, and they miraculously get them all on the garbage can, and I end up knocking it over. Yeah. yeah. So Garbage Day, a lot of fun. Um, and you have cool little mats, or do you, are you out of those at this point? Nope, nope, we still have the mats. Uh, definitely, you can get different themed rooms. So there's a space room, there's a teddy bear room, there's a game room, sports room, uh, kitchen. Lots of different choices for players if they want to enhance the game. So I will warn you that, uh, or warn our listeners that the one thing about Garbage Day is that it's not going to fit on the shelf with your other standard boxed games. And that's because there is quite literally a garbage pail, a, a big trash can that um, that you're using to stack the cards on, which is essential to the play of the game. So we have um, a shelf. Uh, it's really kind of a semi-permanent display of all the games that we have that are in 10s because 10s also generally suck. Um, for, for shelving. And so it has lived over there happily with those in such a way that it's, it's eye catching because you can get to the trash can and what green you used to have a silver one. Yep. Um, silver ones are the limited edition and those are sold out at this point. So but, green yeah, is the so only thing we have left. You got that. And it's, it's pretty neat that it's, it's just eye catching. I saw when I first saw it, I thought it was like, I remember when you could get the buckets of slime as a kid. <laughs> yep. But yeah, just picking it up made me feel nostalgic, even though it was a completely different game inside of it. You know, it's interesting you bring that up because uh, as we as I was developing the game, we had discussions and made the decision that we wanted to make that game nostalgic for the Garbage Pail Kids generation. So mm-hmm. the art is gritty like that. The The lettering is gritty like the Garbage Pail Kids generation. So uh yeah, we definitely put some nostalgia in there on purpose. All right. Well, it's not just me. I'm good with that. No, no, definitely not. We designed it that way. Uh, one of the most interesting things about that project is to see the art come out. The prototype was just the name of the card and a white card with holes drilled in it. So you have things like, uh, you know, craft special or, or uh, half-eaten nachos. And it was interesting to start to see the artists come up with these ideas and get them visual to see what's coming up. That that was the fun part of the game. Hmm. Oh, and we've got a uh, one that I actually just re- randomly received a review copy of, I think, um, called Rooster Rush. Uh, why don't you let our listeners know a bit about that as well? Yeah, Rooster Rush. It's it's it's. Uh, I just barely got noticed that shipping from the factory, so you got an advanced copy of that. Uh, Rooster Rush is a game where you're trying to get the roost the chicken to cross the street. So. Um, you put out the, the possible hazards. Either the chicken is going to get hit by an ambulance, a police truck, a taxi, fire truck. You get the idea. So you spin these uh, poker chips around and you touch the cards of what you think that, that is going to hit the chicken. Or if you don't think the chicken's going to get hit, you can hit the, the crosswalk button. Mm-hmm. So uh, you're kind of like waiting for the tension, waiting for these to start to unwind, and then people start pressing their cards. But it's one of those things where you can't all double up on the same thing. So there's that moment of who's going to go first, and oh, they've already got that, so maybe I should go with this before they stop spinning. So it's kind of a fun little game. You can play it uh, 
quickly at a restaurant. You can play it quickly in the library. And that should be released in about two months at Chinese New Year. So China's shut down right now. We've got a delay in shipping. But it'll be on the water as soon as Chinese New Year is over. It'll be, yeah, this episode will drop either in the last couple of weeks of February or early March. So, um, yeah, it, it should be out soon is what we're saying. Yep. You're probably looking at about four to six weeks after that. Um, okay. Once we get it in, we'll fulfill Kickstarter, get it out to distribution. I try to get things into distribution as soon as possible so that right when Kickstarter's done, the distributors already have it in their possession and they can get it going. Right. So while the Kickstarter people are excited about it um, and showing it off to their friends, people can go buy it at the stores. Exactly. That's part of the boring part of the job of being the account manager, to get that to the distributors in a timely manner. See, you say that, but it really is. You could imagine designing a game where that time on target aspect is essential. So basically, you're playing a board game for your life, for your job. Uh, yeah, it's... Not the I kind of games you make. Say, <laughs> <laughs> I definitely would not say it's boring. It's just not as interesting as the game design. But, um, you know, I interact with people all over the world on a daily basis. I'm moving freight from China directly to other countries. There's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of details. And so I, I do find it interesting. I do find, I enjoy the challenge of it. I enjoy, it's, I also enjoy the challenging of if I can send an email, will I get this response? Will I get an order out of them? Uh, I keep track of people's backstock, things that they ordered that they haven't fulfilled. I've you know, it's neat to see that I can send you an order, say, hey, these card sleeves are back in stock, and then you come back with a huge order, not just the card sleeves. So there is part of the job that I really enjoy of what works, what doesn't work, what's effective, what's not. How do I streamline the process? How do I make sure that people get the word? How do I get sell more into distribution? I do find that challenging, but it's generally not what people want to hear about in a podcast. They want to hear about the new game, the rules changes, <laughs> the development, the, the the interesting part of the game. And we've got some really neat stuff coming up, uh, some some really streamlined, neat games that, that are yeah, the future of Mayday Games is bright, and I'm really excited to. Excellent. What's let let us up. know what those are. Let us let us know what a couple of those are that you can. Uh, we've got a game called Unlikely Heroes. It's uh, designed by Richard Lanius and co-designed by Peter Gusis and Mike Kelly. It's a tower defense co-op game, but the magic of this is that you're not a hero and you're not the militia. So your city is under under attack, and you're going to die. So you're the bard. You're the barmaid. You're the uh, stable boy. <laughs> you start off with your pitchfork, your cleaver, whatever you have, and your your, your town's under attack. You're going to die or you're going to die. So that story and that feeling of dread is in the entire game. And, you know, I've, I've been working with, some of, the, with uh, some of the designers, and the game is so clean and streamlined. You've got two choices. Either you're going to move and attack or you're going to move and do the ability on the space that you're at. Uh, setup is the hardest part of the game. So it's a, it's a co-op that plays in about 45, 60 minutes. At a couple points in the game, heroes do show up to help take the heat off. And when they show up, you're like, oh, I so needed that. Oh, we were about to die. And then the next turn, you feel like you're going to die again. Uh, you level up with the monster tokens. You quickly increase your skills. And at the end of the game, you're rolling buckets of dice and you're just wreaking havoc if you're lucky and if you played well. But it's just a really neat experience that we're taking the fantasy genre and throwing it on its head. And you're the common so folks. So it sounds like, you know, with this and, I don't know, is Viceroy a, a bit more of a complex game that you're sort of uh, allowing your uh, your audience to grow up with with Mayday games? Is that the plan? 
Well, it's not the plan, but it's definitely part of the plan. It's uh, with this one. It's it's Richard Lanius. It's it's a co-op game, but it's so clean. It's it's a game that is so well designed that people are going to be able to play it with ease and play it with their family with ease. Oh, and okay. it's it's a forty-five minute, maybe tops an hour tops experience. That's very accessible. Hmm. Well, yeah. cool beans. Yeah, definitely. Uh, we've got a game called Roman Riot that's uh, that we're just wrapping up some details on for development. It's the it's a real time sorting game, and so what that means is that you're building monuments of the Roman Empire, and each player is a craftsman at the time, and you have five building components. So everybody has arches, columns, pediments, statues, and domes, and each monument that you're building requires a certain amount. So it's real time. Everybody looks at the top card of their deck. So I have an arch. I put it in a monument that requires an arch. As mm. soon as somebody goes through a deck, then they say stop and everybody stops. Then you sort them out. So if you've got a part of the monument that actually belongs, then you get a point. If the monument is completed, then you get additional points. And if you put it in the wrong place, you get negative points. The person that has most extras, those are cards that you played there that fit, but the monument's already been built. You get a bonus if you're the first, if you have the least or the most at the end of the round. So bonus or negative. So really fun, accessible game. Now, what makes the game interesting is that that's the first round. Second round, you pull out Emperor's Decree cards. So this box you might we have sorting boxes just to make the game easier but the contents of this monument is going to be two places to the right so now you're thinking well where does this go and there's always those moments where you place a card and you're like oh that was a mistake i i just realized that that should have been in a different box or some of the symbols are reversed or they score from top down instead of the other side down but really fun game it's very unique where i, I haven't seen a real time sorting game out there and we're very excited to bring that out. Uh, as you mentioned, we have the uh, Viceroy. We have the Viceroy expansion out on Kickstarter right now. It's a modular expansion, so you can you know, play them all, play one at a time, just kind of modify the game. That's definitely on the deep, deeper side of gaming. We have a game coming out soon called Poetry Slam. I think that's going to be our next Kickstarter. And, Ooh, that, um, that sounds like that's a good game for libraries right there. It is a good game for libraries. It's a word party game. Now, for me, that's a hard sell. And I remember meeting with the designer a couple of years ago. He's like, well, I have a word party game. I'm like, okay, you've already unsold me. But this game's really neat. And uh, what it is, is that first off, you have uh, speed tokens. So, well, you have prompt cards. So it might be something like the second from the last letter is, and then you flip over a letter. And then everybody can just come up with a word that fits that. And the first person that gets that, gets to choose a speed tile. The speed tiles are worth one to five points. So children can compete with this. They, they can get in there and make a quick word, and they're grabbing five points off the speed. Good for them. Then the next part of it is you check the word length. You're going to get points based off of word length. People can choose the same word. That's fine. And then the last part is that you need to come up with a rhyming couplet without the word, but something that kind of hints at what that word is. Hmm. And so, um, you know, it might be something like, uh, God, I'm terrible at rhyming couplets. It's something like, uh, might be something like, uh, no, no, that, way, that, that's, that's way up right. in the sky. That's where they fly. Oh, and okay. that could be, that could be a bird. Hmm. And so 
if somebody guesses bird or the word that you wrote, because they already have a clue because of the word prompt of what it is, then that person that guesses gets a point. And if somebody successfully guesses your word, you get a point. And so what's neat about the game... Oh, and then also after that, you flip over your speed token and there's a penalty. So if you get the high speed tokens, you're going to lose one of the more used words or you're going to lose something on that tier because everything's broken down into five tiers. So what's neat about that is that you're going to start you know, you just get ding points if you use a word that you've had blocked off. So the game gets more interesting as it progresses because you might have less options or you think, oh, I'm just going to take the point loss anyway. It'll be worth it. You also have snap tokens. If somebody comes up with something incredibly creative or interesting, then you can hand that out and that gives them a point. And any that you don't hand out at the end of the game is a negative point. So there's so many different elements between the speed, the rhyming couplet, um, you know, crossing off letters on the tier just makes this game fabulous. It's it's a really neat game. We got the beat uh, poetry art for it. It's looking really good. We're very happy with it. Hmm, that's exciting. We've got a a poetry co- competition here, and they have a big party with it. Um, that that might be something for us after this is out to drag out at the next one of those because I think that they. Uh, I I don't find the poetry parties as exciting as other people might. So maybe we could invade it with your game. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I, I'm not very good at poetry, but you know, I think because of me uh, being frustrated sometimes coming up with a rhyming couplet, I, I, I made sure that there was a variant in there that if people are struggling with the poetry that you can just do other creative things. The, the, the object of the game is to be fun, be creative. And so if the rhyming couplets work for your group, great. If not, still play the game and you'll have a way to score it and have a great time. Well, and I like this, and there's um, uh, a game called Bring Your Own Book that we are starting to play with words, and it's just games are sort of getting everywhere, right? Games are getting into everything. Oh, yeah. And and it's nice we're not all just trading spices in the Mediterranean anymore. <laughs> so true. Or or murdering people, you know, in Normandy, right? You know, it's like pretty much that's where games were, and, and now, we're, now we're, we're bigger and better than that, so... And food games and medical games are hot. You're going to see a lot more of those in the next couple of years. <laughs> well, you certainly, yeah, I imagine I imagine that's a big deal. I'm seeing a lot of unpublished prototypes with those themes. I'm seeing, you know, I'm seeing them get signed up by me and other designers. But we're definitely going to see an uptick in food theme games and um, also medical themes. It's, it's interesting. My wife watches Food Network. I watch it just because I'm married to her and happen to be in the same room. So I wonder if that is starting to have a bigger impact on culture in our community where people want food games and that they're going to sell. It's kind of interesting to see. I quit watching um, Food Network after Alton Brown left pretty much. You know, that that was the beginning of the end for me. And then, but I had designed a game that uh, was a cooking competition uh, back, back in the nineties. And I don't think I, I will send it. I'll send you the premise, and you can tell yeah. me whether or not you want me to 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 re reprototype it out or not. Um, but I I'm not expecting that anybody will. Oh, well, actually, I will pitch it right now, and you can tell me whether or not 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 it's an idea. So you are assembling. Uh, it's sort of a uh, a competent. The name of it. My working title was Robo Ninja Slop Jocks Take Over the World or, or Save the World. <laughs> I'm sorry, Save okay. the World. Um, and you are competing for a bunch of judges and there's a deck of judges and here's what the judges like. So like this judge likes spicy foods and this judge likes fish and this judge can't eat onions or whatever it is. Right. And then you have your 
stacks of cards for the recipes that you are going to be building over this competition. Um, but then there's also a side element where you're doing push your luck to try and get rare ingredients because you're sending out your sous chefs to go and raid the Griffin's nest or to, uh, you know, go and get, uh, you know, some cobalt mushroom or whatever it is from the deeper darkest dungeons. And that's sort of, sort of just a quick push your luck sort of element that's on the side. But the rest of the time you are playing games. That's more like a lost Cities sort of thing to build your recipes out and make them really good. But the, There'll be kicker cards like this one's going to be spicy or double spicy. So if this judge over here, um, and you may not know what the judges all like at the beginning of the game, that's something you have to take a turn to figure out. Oh, this one doesn't like spicy food. I better not double spicy my food. And then you do your scoring after the fact. And that's pretty much, it's like an upgraded version of, um, of Lost Cities, only with enough added on that I didn't feel like I was really just ripping off uh you know, the poor designer of Lost Cities. Gotcha. Uh, I, sounds interesting. I'd love to see it. And so what I'm hearing is it's not Mayday appropriate, but you would like to look at it. All right. Uh, it's well, No, it's one of those things of the theme's good, the theme's solid, and, the gameplay and, sounds interesting. I need more information. Okay. All right. Well, I so, maybe so I'll maybe, rework that out. You know, or, you know, email me the rule book. Maybe some of the components give me, a, you know, more detail of what's going on. But, um, now is the time for that theme. I'm seeing a lot of food theme games out there, and I'm seeing really good reactions to them. Nice. Okay. Actually, like I said, this was designed in the '90s, so I will need to actually redesign it based on memory. So, what was your uh, what was your reaction back then? Were people turned off by the theme? Was it kind of a miss? Was people just like, ah? Uh, well, they laughed when I when I uh, when I gave them the name, and they said that name will never work. Um, and then well, they were we like, still yeah. Chopstick Dexterity Mega Challenge 3000. I mean, what's wrong with a long name, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I just figured I, I shortened it to Robo Ninja Slapjocks. Um, and uh, because, you know, robots and ninjas were really big in the 90s. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I probably would change the name if I picked it up. And I, I would not have a problem with, like I said, working title. Um Everybody was like, yeah, that's cool. You should finish developing that. And then they would never ask about it again. And that's where I realized that if they're not asking about it, um, I didn't have the time to deal with it. It's, it's it. interesting you bring that up because a lot of times uh, to avoid buyer's remorse as a publisher that signs games, if I'm excited about the game, I love it. Then I take it home and just sit on it for a while. And if I go back and play it again, then I sign it. If I don't think about it, that's a good sign that it's not for me. And it was yeah. just that one moment of excitement. And that's been working pretty good for us. And I think that works for family games. That works sort of for all level of games, even if it's not your normal kind of game. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's pretty neat. And I, I would like to thank Mayday Games for supporting ShushCon last year in such a glorious, glorious fashion. People really liked the big stack of games, and we sort of did a, a play to win with them for uh, for folks to come in and uh, you know, they get their hands on it and they got real excited and, and sort of pumped up about your stuff. But also it was just nice to have that kind of company support for what we're doing. And thank you very much. No problem. It was, it was nice to participate. Thank you. Well, all right. Um, any final thoughts, Daniel, before we wrap this up? Nope. I think that's it. I appreciate being on the show. It was, it's always good chatting with you and had mm. a great time. Hooray. All right. So, yep. Get out and game with your families. That's what I'm hearing. That's all right. Well, thank you listeners for uh, staying with us for another excellent episode of the Games in Schools and Libraries podcast. Uh, Daniel, where can you be found? Tell us one more time where you and where Mayday Games can be found. 
You can find me on Twitter at DancingDanSLC. Uh, you have Mayday Games on Twitter at Mayday Games. You also have MaydayGames.com. You can find us on Facebook. All the usual Mayday places. Games. Yep, all the usual places. We are out there. Thank you for listening to Games in Schools and Libraries. You can find out more about Inverse Genius and the people who create the Games in Schools and Libraries podcast by visiting us at InverseGenius.com where we have other great shows such as Onboard Games, on RPGs, on Minis Games, I Sense a Theme, and the Room Escape Divas. Games in Schools and Libraries podcast is produced in association with the Georgetown County Library System. You can come and play games with me at the Wacomonic Ranch Library in Georgetown County, South Carolina, in Polly's Island. And we'd love to see you. Also, come for ShushCon, March 23rd, 24th, and 25th, where we will be running and playing games. Oh boy, oh boy, it's almost time for the con. I can't wait to do these escape rooms, play the role-playing games, the board games, show off all these cool new coding games. Shush! Yeah, that's the one. No, shush! We're in a library, sir. We most certainly are. It's ShushCon, a games and geekery convention held in Polly's Island, South Carolina at the Walker Monarch Branch Library, March 23rd, 24th, and 25th. It's the best value for gaming in the Carolinas. We'll have the new board game hotness. You know, the good stuff. Classic and indie RPGs, so we'll have Dread, Call of Cthulhu, Trail of Cthulhu, Paranoia, Savage Worlds, and Dread. Organized play events like D&D, Pathfinder Society, and Shadowrun. As well as War Machine Hordes, Iron Arena, and Steamroller events. Video games like the Jackbox Party Pack, Artemis, Overwatch Land Party, and a Hearthstone Fireside Gathering. We're a tavern! Woohoo! And we're going to have escape room games and custom-made escape rooms. We'll also be hosting a magic draft. And in the finest tradition of ShushCon, we will have a tea party and tea tasting. So we'll have a variety of tasty teas for you to taste and tickle your tonsils. Taste tea? Oh. We will also record segments for On Board Games, On RPGs, and the Games in Schools and Libraries podcast. So you could be on air if you show up here. We're also going to host our library and trade day again. But this time, we're going to be talking about coding and coding activities for libraries. So if you're a librarian, show up. We're going to focus on coding to play and playing with code. That's March 23rd, starting at 10 a.m. and going until 1 p.m. on that Friday, where we're just going to break out the code and show you how you can bring code into your library in the geekiest way possible. And then, of course, you can stay and play games, games, games. And that's part of the Libraries Ready to Code grant that we just received. Look, that's all good and well, but this is a library. I need you to take it down a couple notches. Oh, yes. Uh, so, ShushCon, March 23rd, 24th, and 25th, Polly's Island, South Carolina. Best value in gaming for all the Carolinas. Because it's free. Join us and have fun. Shush. No. ShushCon. <laughs>